0: Today's sex and space charity shout out is one very close to Robin Salisbury's heart. It's called Pakiaka Topuora, Parenting from the Start. This is a fledgling charity which is set up to support and inform parents and caregivers across cultures to help them make their own decisions about raising their tamariki. And Robin believes it offers significant improvements on other antenatal programmes. Pakeaka Topu Parenting from the Start is a fantastic initiative and your support would be greatly appreciated by Robin, of course, and all of us here at Sex in Space.
1: Sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view, to seek out fresh opinions, To boldly go where so many have gone before, and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space, wherever quality podcasts are found.
2: Hi, I am Tim. And I'm Jess. And welcome to another episode of Sex and Space. This is a mega project that explores sex across all of its infinite dimensions.
0: Yes, this is where we turn the awkward into the straightforward and have some fun doing it. And today we are talking to the incredible Robin Salisbury, um, something of a national treasure in That's New right. Zealand, founder of Sex Therapy New Zealand and our local sex-centric agony aunt in the Sunday Star Times. Um they actually hated it when I called them an agony aunt. I think they found it misogynist. So I, I think you know, not to undermine what Robin does. Uh, Robin has been writing a, a sex column for for years in the Sunday Star Times, and it's one of the only visible mainstream spaces where we've had conversations about sex they're a clinical psychologist a sex specialist author of staying in love and now the second book which came out in 2020 free to be children um, which they talk about on this podcast and it's really interesting to hear what the inspiration and the stories are around that Um, robin advocates for healthy intimacy pleasure at any age and the vitality of a life in which needs desires and boundaries can be communicated freely if that's not the most beautiful intention statement i've ever heard I don't know what is. Um, I really hope you enjoyed this podcast. It was such a pleasure and a treat to have Robin with us and an honour to to, um, take up some of her time. So, yeah, enjoy. And now, the interview. Honestly, such an honour to have you here today we've been so delighted to have someone with your um, vast experience to come and speak with us so yes thank you so much oh thank here.
1: you <laughs> Jess. i feel honored to be invited
0: <laughs> so um i guess for a lot of people they'd think how on earth do you get to sex therapy there's not a there's not a university course of that kind how did you end up doing what mm. you where you are now
1: no, um, there is not a university course. I will tell you how close we got to that uh in a minute, but how I got there is the same with my whole life. I kind of followed my nose, so I was in my early twenties, had a young child um got a part time job as a community house coordinator in a a little um subdivision that was near where I lived, and um I found that the women who used the house talked to me about their problems and I didn't know how to help. (laughs) And so I sought some counselling training and at that point I had no money and so the only kind of free training was to train as a marriage guidance counsellor. And I was really fortunate they had a very vigorous selection process and I was fortunate to be selected and I was 27 at that point, I think, which was one of their youngest ever Mm counsellors. And um, I loved it. It was a wonderful, wonderful experiential training. I still think of that as my apprenticeship. And so my beginning model was training in couples counselling. And I had the very good fortune to have the supervision of Joan Lust, who was a very early sex therapist in the Wellington District, And Joan got me asking my clients uh, questions about their sexual experiences right from the outset. And that's what got me started. Mm. And it was was mind-boggling and very challenging for me. You know, I still remember quite clearly walking up and down the office one day before my clients arrived saying... Penis, 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 masturbate, masturbate, masturbate. Because I could not get my lips and tongue used to getting around those words. I'd never said out loud before. And so I developed a stutter, you know, and I was thinking, oh, this isn't impressive, and I want to put my clients at their ease, so I'd better practice. And nowadays, um, my husband would tell you that those words, and many others, slip off my tongue all too readily and loudly. <laughs> But, um, it just it did take practice and in the family I grew up in, we didn't talk about um body parts with their proper names if we talked about them at all, oh. and so it was very new for me to be talking about those issues and What I found was that when I did ask people about sex, they were so relieved to be able to talk about it, and they often raised concerns that they had and just by talking about them in really matter-of-fact ways, uh, they were able to achieve some improvements. So that was pretty gratifying, Mm. and I think that was part of what led me on my course of um, developing my knowledge about sex therapy and about the whole dance of intimacy, you know, the intriguing dynamics of um, couple relationships that Mm. really fascinated me. And so I went on and did a lot more counselling training. I uh, did a degree in psychology. Um, That didn't particularly speak to my needs, but I could tell that getting a qualification was a good idea. (laughs) I then moved on to train in psychotherapy and throughout that continued to be really fascinated about issues of sexuality and continued Mm -hmm. working in that field. Uh, and then um, Kevin and I and our son went on a working holiday in Australia for a year. We lived in a little van and um, had jobs in various places, and Ryan went to school at some point, but he also... um, uh, he he had periods where he was the navigator and he well, we were keeping a diary every day and he was writing letters to family at home, so we figured... Oh, and his teacher had given us a maths book, so that was his schooling. And that was just time out to think about, OK, where to from here? And for me, I decided I really want to keep doing this kind of work and I need to get adequate qualifications to do that. So... From a job I had in Adelaide of restringing Venetian blinds, I uh, (laughs) applied to join the clinical program, completely unaware that um, training as a clinical psychologist was hugely competitive, you know, Mm -hmm. limited places and lots of applications. And um, I was selected, luckily, and so I trained to be a clinical psychologist. And throughout that time, um, you know, issues of sexuality were barely... On the curriculum, um, but I continued my private study of that. And then once I'd qualified, just continued to work with couples and um pursue training, um, went to quite a number of international conferences, um, read hugely, continued to read a lot, mm. uh, and joined a British association of sex therapists and then an American-based um, one, which aims to be an international association. So learned a huge amount from my international peers too. Mm. Oh, it was just so exciting. So much to learn and so much happening. And it was in um, 2002 that I set up, and um, began to develop training courses because I thought I want more people to know about this. I want, um, you know... I want to share all of the knowledge that I've developed. Mm. So I set up a, a foundation course in sex therapy and I ran um, dozens of those, I think, over the years and then also advanced training in sex therapy. And I I remain really proud of those. Mm. Um, I'm delighted with how they were received and mm. I really enjoyed being able to... Um, gather with other people who were interested in that field and really grapple with issues of sexuality and the the lenses through which people were invited to look at them and to be able to challenge those. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in the early 2000s, that was the era, I think, where the PDE5 inhibitors, which are um, drugs like um, Viagra and Cialis, yes. were introduced and really pushed and so we had the whole medicalization of sexuality and there was quite a strong model of um sexual dysfunction which i, I um was challenging because i i think a, a, a sexual function and dysfunction model really um creates performance anxiety you know can i measure up mm. um Am I doing it well enough? Is my erection hard enough? Is it mm. lasting long enough? Am I reaching orgasm soon enough? And so um, I enjoyed getting people to look at all those socio-cultural and political pressures and then reflect on the richness and variety of erotic experience mm. and how that got lost in that, you know, in the midst of those models and what would be required uh, for people to reclaim it and to help their clients to reclaim their own eroticism.
0: So is it a matter of kind of going, um, there's nothing wrong or like moving away from good and bad, like dysfunction and function (laughs) Mm. into a model of difference? Like how would you... Well,
1: you know, the number of people who would come along saying, Oh, I've got um hyposexual desire disorder, my you know, my GP diagnosed me and has sent me to you. <laughs> Great. And then we'd look at the, the lack of interest and desire, but maybe not a lack of interest, but a lack of desire or a lack of arousal, and could often easily and quickly understand that actually the sex that the person had been having wasn't very desirable to them. Mm. So why the hell would they desire it? Mm. You know, and if your conditions for being sexual or your conditions for arousal are not being met or maybe you're not even aware of them, That's then right. it's a significant risk that you're going to end up not being interested in being sexual Um when you would like to be or uh, or if there's pressure to be sexual or if there are um, strains in a relationship or someone's having casual sex but inside them they're not comfortable with um, not knowing if they can trust their partner. You know, there's mm. so many factors mm. that go into allowing someone to be sexual if they want to.
0: Mm. I'm kind of interested in where you came from like what was your what kind of family did you come from? you mentioned you didn 't talk much about bodies, but what was your what did your sex education look like when uh, at school? Well,
1: one of my earliest memories is of sitting in the bath um, with my my big sister Marion. Uh, she would have been about five or six, my little brother Kevin, who would have been maybe eighteen months or so, and me, who must have been about three or four, and my mother with her pinny on saying, if you don't stop playing with that thing and making it go hard, it will fall off. (laughs) And and me thinking, oh, maybe that's what happened to mine. (laughs) So there was a Oh, so you had a sense of loss?
0: You thought you'd lost something? I did. I did. Ah, fascinating. And I
1: spent um, periods of time through my early childhood trying to um, figure out how to pee standing up. I, I penis envy, oh, I guess. Wow. I wanted to have one. And at, at one point, I had been given um, a little chemi- toy chemistry set as a Christmas present. Mm. And one of the um, test tube had broken at the bottom. And I thought, here's my chance. So I could stand up and pee through this test tube. And I, I thought it was really cool. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit messy, I have to say. You had to cite it correctly. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, no clear um, information about bodies or sexuality mm. at home. I remember discovering um, what I thought was a flying saucer in the bathroom on a on a seat in the bathroom and running in to tell mum. And it turned out, I only worked this out afterwards, it was her diaphragm that she'd been washing. Mm. And she was just, she would just push me out the way and raced and got it and went and hid it. And I was left puzzled about what was the flying saucer and how come it was mum's and we weren't going to get to talk about it.
0: Yeah, where was your flying saucer? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then uh, my sister um, got her period quite early, so she was given a book. I think um, the manufacturers of sanitary napkins, Um, Johnson & Johnson produced this little guide to Your Body. She was given that book, and she passed that on to me. So I would have been maybe about nine when I read that. Mm -hmm. and I don't remember what it told me, but I don't have a sense it was particularly helpful. Mm. And then at intermediate school we had, here's our um, binary model, you know, boys and girls separately got to see a film on the birds and the bees. And I think our parents were asked to come, though goodness knows why, (laughs) and Mm. uh, no discussion about it. And then... In the fifth form, my fifth form biology teacher, who was male, got his wife, who was a nurse, to come and do the lesson on reproduction. And honestly, by his abdication of that role, I think he taught us more about um, the awkwardness of sexuality than anything else. And that was about it. So really, wow. I came um, to the delight of being able to talk about issues of sexuality from a background of ignorance and puzzlement. And, and I think another factor, when I was about 14 or 15, mum and dad bought a dairy, and so I got um, access to uh, Penthouse and Playboy magazines. Right.
0: And so that was education of a sort. Yeah, the- I think those are really valuable, interesting sources, right? So you've got these formal channels, which is sort of the home and the school and then mm. kind of like, Self-exploration? Was that also a Oh, absolutely. Here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The,
1: the reading of the magazines was very arousing. Mm. However, it also taught me that my body didn't look like theirs, and so I assumed mine was quite inadequate. And I was a late developer, so I went from a nickname of Pancake's to a nickname of boobs felt like almost overnight. You know, once my breast development started, then it burgeoned. Mm. And I was extremely uncomfortable about that. Mm. And I think it was around that time um, that I began to develop an eating disorder. So I went from being pretty tall and skinny to being quite overweight and just putting a layer of fat around my body, because I didn't like, I didn't know what to do with the way people would respond to my breasts. You know, I remember um, crossing the road once and a guy leaning out of the car and going with his tongue and me thinking, ugh, you know, (laughs) just feeling shamed, really. Mm. So I was very uncomfortable in my body Mm. and then having an eating disorder where you feel like a pig and you're fat and out of control and mm. all of that while it covered my sexuality it also shamed me too. So it became quite a vicious cycle really. Mm. So it a, a lot of sorting out to do.
0: Yeah, that's actually quite a common story, hey. I the, know. Like this sudden moment of sexualization and then desperately trying to find strategies to disguise Mm. that or Mm. or lean into it. Some people lean into that moment as well. Yes, yeah,
1: well, Mm. good on them if they can. The the models that I had with the Playboy and Penthouse, you know, there was no way I felt like I could act like that. And I also subsequently understood that was a very, one, masculine perspective of Mm. eroticism. And it it didn't fit me, you know. Uh, Women's sexual fantasies are not always, but quite often um, different. I mean, there's a whole range, of course, Mm. and there's a whole range for men, but the things that were portrayed in those magazines um, were not of interest to me particularly or didn't speak to me, I should say that. There was also a little magazine. I think it was called Health and Efficiency. That was a nudist magazine, and unlike the Penthouse and Playboy, it had photos of naked men. So it was at least oh. able to look at those bodies because I'm heterosexual, yeah. and so that that was of great interest to me. All <laughs> oh, right,
0: okay. And, and was this in the era when um, those magazines still had pubic hair? Like, was that? Oh,
1: absolutely. You're talking to someone who still has pubic hair.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, myself too. But, um, no, I'm just fascinated because I know there was this moment when, um, Playboy came out with the Teenage Dreams, um, Ah. a Teenage Dreams edition. Okay. And then that tipped the balance and, um, everyone started Ah. getting Brazilians and then, you know, it became, commonplace for oh, pornography see. of yeah, any kind yeah. No, to disappear. No, it was prior to that. That would, would have oh, been wonderful. early
1: 1970s, <laughs> I think. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah.
0: the great time of Bush, wonderful. Mm. <laughs> um, so for you, it sounds like you've been, been through so many shifts, so I feel, uh, yeah, I feel rude asking for a sort of superlative, but I'm wondering for you what has been your biggest shift in this realm if you had to kind of... Oh, personally Aspect. or professionally? Personally, I'm, I'm interested in mm. personally. Yeah,
1: I think learning to inhabit my body. So from mm. the upbringing that I had and my early experiences, and my eating disordered years, I I was quite out of touch with my body and felt so uncomfortable about her and. I don't know how I found my way there. Someone told me about Hecate Women's Health Collective in Wellington, and I don't actually remember much of what happened there, but I do remember there was a poster on the wall of a woman, and it said, I can... ah um oh, now I can't remember the words, but something about living in my body, I I can accept my body all the way out to her edges or something like that. Mm. And I love that sense of her edges. This is me. This is my body. I get to say how it is. I get to look after it or not. You know, Mm. it felt like a claiming of agency, and Mm. that was really important to me. And then even further so, when I got pregnant with our son, that was the first time in my life I felt really good about my body because it was doing something magnificent. And I actually lost a huge amount of weight during that pregnancy, not because I was trying to or I was restricting my eating, but because because I felt good about my body, I wanted to look after her. Mm. And so I did. And that was really important too.
0: Ah, so do you For you, is there a, I mean, this might be obvious, but is there a relationship between feeling kind of at home in your body, what you're talking mm. about, and your sex life? Like?
1: I think it's an important, uh, yeah, a, c- crucial, really. You have to be able to inhabit your body. You have to be able to tolerate pleasure. I think that's an interesting mm. concept of pleasure tolerance that one of my American colleagues introduced me to, that there are many people for whom um pleasure is seen as a sort of self indulgence or something frivolous yes. and they're getting on with being, you know, high achieving or whatever. Whereas to um to recognise and rejoice in all of our senses and mm. to um celebrate them is an important part of being able to own your own sexuality and enjoy it, I think. Mm. So there were lots of ongoing learnings in that for me.
0: So interesting, isn't it? Because you can kind of imagine a different kind of sex education that... Mm. I don't. I mean, what would a, what would a sex education written by Robin Salisbury oh, yeah. look like? You know, if we were <laughs> well, going I think school. it begins at birth. Yeah, you know, in
1: in our responses to our children and grandchildren and any children, um, being able to uh, see their delight in their own little bodies because children know how to inhabit their bodies mm. and being able to mirror that delight to them and normalise it and use normal body um, terms to describe parts of the body and to answer children's questions. You know, children guide us in what they need to know. I don't think we have to prepare a syllabus for them when they're little. Um, They ask lots of questions. We were talking about pubic hair before. My oldest grandson asked me when he was about three, I think, Grandma, why have you got hair on your willy? And I thought, (laughs) where do I start with this? And I was also very aware um, of my role as a mother in law rather than, you know, like there there were others to negotiate through, I think, in terms of self education, (laughs) uh, sex education. But in the moment, I wanted to respond well. So I said to him, oh, girls and women haven't got willys, haven't got penises. I wouldn't use that word. Uh, We've got vaginas. And he said, oh, can I see it? Mm. (laughs) And fortunately, he had just been telling me that at daycare, they'd been learning that bottoms were private. So I was able to say to him, no, um, because remember what you said about bottoms are private. Because I thought this was the mother-in-law, but thinking if he went home and said to his mum and dad, <laughs> "Grandma showed me her vagina today," I might get in trouble. <laughs> but I was also able to say, "And and this here grows when you go through puberty, which happens when you're maybe about twelve or thirteen or whenever, and um and then you grow some hair on your body and." I thought, okay, that'll be enough for now. And he Mm. was satisfied with that. Mm. And I didn't need to shame him or tell him off. And I, you know, I hope it was an adequate response.
0: Mm.
1: And now, this. This is the GBC. Time for a commercial break.
0: Barbarellas. Aroused? Then port yourself to Barbarellas. We've been providing non-judgmental carnal appeasement to the underfondle for over 29 Gaussian units. Are you a multi-limbed, chlorine-breathing arthropod from the Triangulum Galaxy and despairing of ever having a group group? A third catamite from Phallus 12, looking to be rubbed up the wrong way? Or just a transsexual gas being from the Magellanic Cloud who wants to experiment with solid objects? At Barbarella's, you can. Just nine parsecs off the northern celestial hemisphere in the beautiful constellation of Virgo, Barbarella's is open 36 hours a day, nine days a week, and our magnificent play beings are just waiting for you to coalesce in our quadrant. Barbarellas, your pleasure is our business.
2: This message brought to you by Never Dry, Virgo's trusted name in lubrication.
1: Now, back to some military grade chit chat.
0: I'm interested too in what, because I guess, um,. Many people listening might have no idea what sex therapy is. I mean, there must be a raft of misconceptions about Mm. what you do. So I guess it would be useful for you to kind of define that. yeah. One of the things I often found myself telling
1: prospective clients in the early days was you get to keep your clothes on. (laughs) Yes. So um, although in some countries there are some hands-on sex therapists, which are kind of sex surrogates or sex coaches, uh, that's not part of what we do in New Zealand. And um, people come and they – usually an an, an opening question for me has been tell me what it is that's happening or not happening um, that concerns you or that brings you to me because I want to normalise – whatever it is that their concerns are and often people come feeling like they have to be embarrassed because they're not measuring up whereas Mm. things happening and not happening kind of broadly covers the range and Mm. so we just get into talking and our our first session uh, we, we assess really broadly about what are the concerns and what is the context of that in terms of Cultural influences, familial influences, you know, political influences. What's the wider context of of um, their life? Are they in a relationship? Usually, we're working with couples, so you know, the relationship there is to be looked at. What what's going on there? Um, looking at all of the contextual factors and helping people to clarify what it is that they would like to work on changing for themselves. Mm. Some people just want to be more happy to say, this is me, I don't choose to be sexual, or I don't choose to have sex. Um, other people want to have their first orgasm, or, or um, you know, I've helped a woman in her 70s have her first ever orgasm, and I've helped women in their 60s have their first ever sex, mm. um, right through to... Um, you know, sex is painful, or I'm bored. You know the the mm. whole um, intercourse centric model of sexuality, as if we have to have intercourse. And
0: do you sort of mean? Do you mean penis and vagina? Is that sort of the, or,
1: well, the penetrative sex? Yeah, right. is assumed to be the norm, mm. whereas it's not what many people
0: choose at all. Thank you, Sigmund Freud. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we are so grateful. <laughs> um, mm. there must be an enormous stigma, I would imagine, too, because I I know floating around in the culture, there's this idea that we're all meant to be magically mind readers about what your partner wants, mm. and you're meant to sort of arrive, like sort of arrive into your sex life already brilliant at it. Yeah, you know, yeah, there yeah. must be an Primed enormous stigma. to yeah, I know. Yeah,
1: I know. The people coming
0: because they go, oh, I have to admit. That I'm yes, not, I'm not a that good I'm not lover. Perfect. Or, yeah. 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 I am, um,
1: am often reassuring people that uh, no one is a good lover. And if just because, you know, with your last partner, the two of you were really happy with your sex doesn't mean you're a good lover because actually you've got now a new partner to get to know and there's a whole new body and a whole new individual and you two have got. A dance of intimacy to learn that is um, going to involve each of you saying this is me this is what I like to the extent I know this is what I'd like to try oh okay you want to try that all right let's give that a go or no I'm not comfortable with that so that working out of um, an us way forward is a process and it can take years and I encourage people to enjoy that process too and be able to laugh, you know. Mm. Um, For a period of time, when I set up Sex Therapy New Zealand, I had an administrator, and one of her first pieces of feedback to me was, I can't believe how much laughter I hear coming through your door.
0: And and, um, sex ought to be fun. It ought to be playful. I've read your, or started reading your book, Staying in Love, which seems to me very much um, directed towards... uh, Uh, monogamous couples. Yes. Yeah, and so I'm kind of interested in um, what your experience or what your... Yeah, I I imagine only monogamous couples come to see you. What was your experience around polyamory or asexuality or these alternatives, you know? No, that's not the case that that's all I
1: work with. It's interesting uh, that in the era in which I wrote that book, so it was being written sort of 2007, 2008, I think we brought it out early, 2009, Polyamory was not openly talked about. Affairs certainly were, but because you know the nature of an affair is that often it's not negotiated openly, so it's mm. it is experienced as a breach of contract, a breach of trust, and so monogamy ruled in in terms of what people were uh, willing to talk about at that point. Um, subsequent to that yes polyamory is talked about a lot more and initially my exposure to it was more with couples who'd struck problems you know they had negotiated it they wanted an open relationship they thought they had a good understanding but then one would find it really threatened them or one would fall in love with someone and want to leave them and so there Mm -hmm. was that pull back to a monogamous relationship and a and a betrayal of the contract. Um, and so it took quite a while over time for me to then move into, or then to be um, consulted by couples who were saying, help us do this. You know, we don't want a monogamous relationship. We want to recognise that each of us want a range of sexual experiences mm-hmm. because of the whole Fluidity of sexuality of of gender of orientation of um, preferences of everything we want to recognize our whole selves we want to be able to do that within the context of this relationship and um so you know to some extent, my learning was driven by what was demanded of me from my clients mm-hmm. and from training courses mm-hmm. and I know um with the st and z team. There were members of the team, were are members of the team that are polyamorous, they live polyamorous lifestyles. And so we were able to have some really rigorous discussions, you know, and I always remember one of them challenging me that um, my choice for monogamy and for wanting that exclusivity, my personal choice, reflected my insecurity and uh-huh. me challenging him back about his butterfly behaviour, you know. He couldn't settle on anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd have these good-hearted debates that just helped us explore all of the issues and mm. continue to um upskill ourselves, really.
0: So there's you have seen a, a shift or a, a moment, a mm. cultural moment of that conversation opening up? Absolutely. And yeah.
1: in, in various ways, you know, When I developed the training courses back in early, well, 2002, I think, um, or maybe even been earlier than that, I'm not sure, uh, we covered all of the um, range of the wonderful variety that nature produces in human bodies and human sexuality and society's struggle in dealing with that. And that was very much in that era not talked about openly and you know, I will never forget a young couple mm. who um came to see me, and they were totally overwhelmed um by having just given birth and been told that their baby was intersex and they were horrified and and um just really stuck about how on earth they were going to answer people 's questions about what did you have, mm. and so through that time i 've known and been preparing the team, and the team has continued to to become skilled in dealing with all of those issues of uh, gender diversity and mm. um and fluidity. Uh, and so we've watched society seeing, okay, you're going to have to catch up with this, you're going to have to face it, and now that is talked about more openly. We've still got a long way to go, mm-hmm. I think, and it concerns me that we've still got quite a way to go to accept people being in same-sex relationships, and these mm-hmm. are people who can who... who can fit a binary model. They can say, I'm a woman and I love a woman, or Mm. I'm a man and I love a man. But to have people who are saying, "Um, I don't identify with any of those categories, I'm me, and I don't know who I'll choose to have sex with or whether I'll choose to have sex, and I'll work that out, and maybe it will be this and maybe it will be that and maybe some of all sorts and, you Mm. know... Uh, there's a lot of people running scared about that, I think. Mm. And in a society that still struggles in some sectors to accept homosexuality, I'm not surprised, I mm. guess.
0: And in terms of asexuality, what, how do you position that inside your kind of framework mm. and world? View?
1: Well, it has not often been an issue that people have consulted me about because... uh. When you can recognise that you are asexual, you you don't choose to change that. Mm. When it's arisen in the couples I've been working with, and it has been in couples, it's been when someone has recognised, um, I, I don't want to be sexual, I don't enjoy sex, I never have. I'm doing this for you, this is me, I am asexual. And then that's experienced as a breach of contract. Mm. You know, we entered into this relationship. I understood that you did want me. Why are you telling me this five years down the track? Mm. And does this mean you want me to live a life mm. of celibacy? And so then we look at other options and what can be negotiated. And is this the end of this relationship? Or is there a degree of openness and tolerance and um, that can be... You know, achieved wow,
0: it's mm. not easy work.
1: it's fascinating work, mm. yeah, what, it's never been boring.
0: What do you love about it? I love that
1: well i I feel honored by people trusting me. Mm. I love how quickly I can help people settle down and find their comfort. And then their joy in being able to grapple with issues of sexuality. Mm. I love the changes that I see people making, seeing them come alive, have a bounce in their step, Mm. um, grow their sensuality. You know, when you've been doing sex therapy with people and then they turn up and say, Oh, look at that clematis on your fence. Isn't
0: it glorious?
1: <laughs> and you think, yes. <laughs> 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 but they're smelling the roses. You know?
0: I love it's, that as, yeah. a, as a litmus test. <laughs> yeah, sort of.
1: <laughs> Beats a focus of, um, God, don't you get overwhelmed by all the weeds in your garden? And then I think, okay, yeah. case I've got some depression going on here. Oh. Perhaps. Because I have found, It's a bit of a sideways step, but working with sexuality is an insight into the psyche. So as a psychotherapist and clinical psychologist, you know, I've had a general practice as well. I deal with all kinds of psychological issues and and issues of humanity. Um, Being able to venture into into sexuality helps to inform general kind of... uh, ways of being in the world mm. and vice versa. So it's, it's deepened mm. and broadened my practice, I think.
0: Ah, and you must have seen such enormous shifts. You've talked a little bit about it, but some enormous shifts over your time working in this space in Aotearoa. I'm kind of interested in what big kind of crunchy points you've seen. Mm. Is it the way I that don't, you think about it?
1: I don't really. I think more about the struggles and where we've still got to go. You know, I hate that if you're gay and you work at a, in a, a as a teacher in a Catholic school, you're having to present a, a syllabus that says, "You know, we will tolerate homosexuals graciously, mm. but as long as they don't ever seek out someone to love them and to share their bodies with, I think that's agonizing." Mm. and I still uh, come across people who are being denigrated in their workplace for their sexual orientation or their expression of self. So I'm very aware of the pain that is still ongoing. Mm. I've worked with quite a few transgender people who are in the process of transitioning. Mm. So they've um, called themselves transgender. Some have uh, done magnificently. They've prepared their workplace, they've um, called on people who have been very supportive, who've created policy in order to make it safe for they and others to then be themselves in their own workplaces. So that's been really heartening. Mm. But I'm just aware we've still got a long way to go. Mm. And that will be ongoing for always, I'm sure.
0: I'm interested too in whether, because um, I know that consent culture is something that's really mm. blossomed inside my lifetime, um, and I wondered if that has had flow-on effects that you've seen inside um, your work or literacy in that space. I don't know.
1: I'm, I know about the work that's being done in that field. I'm horrified at how much how many gaps there still are in sex education in this country. So I'll just um, jump on a little hobby horse there. It's mm-hmm. um, part of the book that I will be talking to you about um, mm-hmm. later. But in, I think it was 2015, the Ministry of Education um, contracted uh, an academic to produce uh, guidelines for sex education syllabus I think she did a brilliant job. It's comprehensive, it's inclusive, it's respectful, and it it covers everything. And and she's really clear about the need to embed it in every age throughout the syllabus in in order for sexuality to become just a part of what we learn. Mm. And certainly um, consent is a part of that, but I'm sorry to say that the surveys that have been done subsequent to that, and that's, you know, in the last four years, show that many schools are not giving sex education.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I understand about the challenges and the complexities, but they're mandated to teach it, and it mm-hmm. is essential for our. Our tamariki, our children, it's f- for their well-being. Mm. They need to understand they are sexual beings and that that's just a part of who they are and mm. they need to understand about their bodies and they need to know they're in charge of their body and they need to understand about consent and they need to be empowered to be able to say, no, I don't
0: want you to do that. Mm. And it's not happening. No, we're near enough. Mm. Yeah, they can uptake it if they wish, eh, is my understanding. And
1: Well, they're mandated to teach um, a sex education, health and sex education, which mm. part of what is expected.
0: So, I mean, if you, if you were to reflect back on yourself and kind of go with everything you know now, what do you wish that you had learned as, I don't know, 15-year-old? Mm. Fifth-old. Oh, Robin, yeah. That I'm good enough. Oh, mm, yeah. That would have been great, just as a person or as a sexual person, or ah, oh, well, both, yeah. both. You know,
1: you asked me for for some songs that I like, mm. and I um named Helen Reddy singing "I Am Woman," and then I went and listened to it, watched it on YouTube, and I just cried because you you know, even now, I'm 62, I'm hugely more confident than I have been. Mm. So progressively, I've worked on that really hard. But to stand out there on a stage, <laughs> see, I'm going to start crying now just mm. thinking about it. Okay. And to present your body and say, you know, I am woman and, you know, hear me roar. Mm. In order for me to speak up, I, I need to um, always work through a hurdle of what's sometimes called imposter syndrome you know do I know enough am I good enough will I be able to talk about this you know who's going to pull me apart all of that kind of stuff so yeah I'm good enough would be a good message for children to be getting
0: yeah it's amazing to hear you say that as somebody who's called on all the time I imagine as an expert in your Mm. field it's interesting to hear that it that feeling sticks it's, around. Oh, yes.
1: <laughs> yes. And I actually, I mean, for the last few years, I haven't. Well, was, um, in 2010, I think, others took over Sex Therapy New Zealand. So there were other directors and uh, they've been doing more of the media interviews. Mm. And I've just been relieved about that, you know, back into the into the background. um. I think partly I'm an introvert and I have sure. to really organise ex- extrovert moments but yeah. also that self-doubt. You know, I don't think I'll ever fully be able to say I've conquered it. Mm. I I can work through it. I can still find me and express me, you know, for better or worse sometimes,
0: but um, it'll always be there. Mm. I think yeah, I think it's so powerful because that does sit under all of our kind of relationship experiences. If you, at a bone level, mm. don't feel that you're enough, mm. everything is just going to be so much harder. That doubt is just so much crunchier, you know. Everything.
1: Yeah. Yes, it certainly does. That the individual that we take into a relationship shapes what's possible mm. until you until you do the work of addressing it.
0: Mm. I'm interested in what your latest book...
1: It, it was a, a not a project that I planned to do or anything. In fact, I had no plans to write another book. I'd done one. I was satisfied with that. It's a lot of work. And writers in New Zealand uh, certainly don't earn much from that huge amount of work. But there was a series of events that happened uh, two years ago, so... July 2017. Within a period of just a couple of weeks, four very powerful experiences that led me to decide that I was going to um, edit a book on addressing child sexual abuse in this country. So that's the negative side of my work, is that I have often been working with people who have experienced childhood sexual abuse Mm -hmm. and are trying to, wanting to claim their sexuality and claim sexual pleasure and all of the work that they've had to do for that. And so I've been very mindful of the harm that is done and also mindful that throughout my career, you know, at the beginning I really wanted to be able to um, help people feel good about their sexuality, help people form strong relationships that meet their needs, you know, create beautiful children, provide safe places for them to grow up in, all of that kind of thing. And, you know, here 30 years later, uh, the prevalence of child sexual abuse is as high as ever, mm-hmm. if not higher, and... Mm-hmm. um and so it was time to do something about that. I felt really compelled to work on that. And I've been uh, stunned and honoured by the number of people who were willing to take part in that. So the book is written by 16 of us. I'm editor. I've written the introduction and and a preface and the concluding chapter uh, and two chapters on the development of sexuality, one, what's required for that to become um, constructive, really, for, for it to allow people to claim their sexuality in ways that are life-enhancing for them, and then what is it that happens that leads to people developing destructive sexual behaviours. So I've grappled with those issues, and we've got um, the chief censor, Writing, um, he's written a brilliant chapter on technology and how that impacts on um, on children and their safety. And mm. uh, there's a forensic paediatrician who's done over a thousand uh, examinations, assessments of children who've been sexually abused. There's a, a brilliant and wonderful. Um, clinical psychologist who specialised in working with traumatised children who's written about her work in the field. There's a magnificent Māori woman who actually, in writing about her work with male Māori child sex offenders, has um, honoured us all with the story of her own childhood sexual abuse and her journey through drug abuse and obesity and prostitution and suicide attempts through to finding her way to heal and then being able to work with others in the community to help them heal and being able to work with those who have got harmful sexual behaviours as well as those who've been harmed by it. Mm-hmm. So the many moving chapters, huge expertise, and uh, it's really evident to me that everybody has brought their heart and soul as well Mm. as the expertise to the work. So I'm delighted with it.
0: What's the name of the book?
1: It's called Free to Be Children. Free to Be Children. And And then the subtitle is Preventing Child Sexual Abuse in Aotearoa New Zealand.
0: And the intended audience? Who do you
1: expect? I want everybody to read it. (laughs) (laughs) The intended intended audience, I think, is both um, professional and community um, members. Anyone who cares about children and wants to help to protect them and make them Mm -hmm. safe to be all they can be. So I think, I believe, the book will speak to all readers about finding, help them find what they can do to make a difference because it's actually not rocket science, Mm. but we haven't had the courage and the will and the momentum to get together in our communities and really um, make this change happen. And just one little example, you know, I talked about my concerns about what's not happening yet with sex education. Um, I I would like as many parents as possible of children at school of all ages. To be lobbying their school principal, of um, hey, we would like this included in the curriculum. We will support you to present this to the school community. Um, we trust that you can do this in a way that will keep our children safe. That you're not going to be, you know, giving them destructive messages or whatever. You know, the reality is, and this has been shown very carefully um, through research evidence, very clearly is that when children are given sound information and help to make their own decisions, they actually begin sex later in life and there are far fewer unintended pregnancies. You know, those have to be good outcomes Mm. for children, quite apart from anything else that may or may not have been measured as outcomes.
0: So this has not been in your direct area of work. No, just something that's called to you. It it has. You've been called to it.
1: Yes, yes. Yes. Do you want me to talk about those four compelling things? Oh, go for it. Yes, please. Come (laughs)
0: on. (laughs) Well,
1: as part of my general psychological practice, I do quite a bit of work for the New Zealand Police in Mm. my district, and that is giving individual quarterly debriefs to each member of some of the specialist teams, which includes the child protection team and the adult sexual assault team. And one of the detectives from one of those teams was at her final debrief before rotating out of one of those squads into a general CIB squad. And right at the end of the session, she leaned forward in her seat and said to me, Robin, what are we going to do about child sexual abuse in this country? And... I was a little bit taken aback, and my reflection in the moment was that she hadn't yet found her way to come to terms with her relative powerlessness, really, uh, about being able to make a difference. And so I shared with her my little theory about how we're all little worker ants, uh, beavering away, doing our bit, and that we have to accept that in our lifetime we may not see significant change, but we, you know, we strive for excellence and we do what we can. Now, I could see very clearly from the look on her face she wasn't impressed by that answer. But it was the end of the session and I did have another client who was coming soon. And so we finished and she went. And then that night I talked to my friend Sue, who was the... um, child psychologist who has written in the book and she'd just been through a horror uh, nine hours of surgery for a a nasty cancer and she was about to go through 30 sessions of radiotherapy and we were just um, chatting about... Oh, she said... She told me the story of how um, she had asked her surgeon, when can I go back to work? She's very Mm -hmm. committed. And he had said to her... Sue, so I think you need to be focusing on quality of life. And so she told him, again, I'm going to end up in tears, the story of a little four-year-old who she'd been working with who had gonorrhea and the ways, and in, 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 as Sue writes in the Free to Be Children, how she goes about helping children to feel safe enough and to claim their own voice to be able to talk about what's happening to them. And, and she, Sue worked as a part of a multidisciplinary team, which meant that then the police were able to get enough evidence to be able to lay charges, and the child was able to be kept safe, made safe. And then the child was able to receive therapy to reclaim their own, you know, ability to be in their body and to feel safe in their body and all of those things. And so Sue told me that experience and we talked a little bit about how, you know, we had met as we both went through university through the clinical psychology program, post program, as mature students. And, and Sue had come from a background as a care and protection social worker in a mm. um, girls' detention center. And she had found that um, most of those girls had been sexually abused. So here they are you know, is sentenced to detention because of their behaviour in the community, but actually nobody was addressing the underlying issues. Mm. Anyway, then a day or two later, I went on holiday, and I was walking along a very beautiful walkway beside a beach. Uh, This was in um, the Sunshine Coast in Australia, so it was the middle of winter, and it was warm, and I was wandering along with Kevin, my husband, in my shorts and t-shirt, and just feeling um, blissfully relaxed and not thinking about any of that. And an instruction was planted in my head, I can't describe it any other way, and it said, write for social change. And I was, um, I wouldn't say taken aback. I felt like I'd received a gift, I didn't quite know what it meant. Uh, But that afternoon while I was lying around resting I googled, writing for social change, and I learned it was a genre of writing and that, of course, it was about, you know, addressing issues that you felt needed to be addressed in society. And then the fourth piece was that I remembered that someone we know uh, had been making references to the fact that as he was nearing about to turn 70, he was thinking about writing down his horror, traumatic childhood story as a way to try and lay it to rest. And uh, that man agreed uh, to have me help him write his story and to have that be the opening of uh, Free to Be Children. So it was a bringing together of those things, and it just felt very clear Mm. then that um, this is a book that needs to be produced and I want it to spearhead a campaign. It's time for us in our Aotearoa to be addressing this issue mm. and making our country safe for mm. our children.
0: Oh, that is such a gorgeous mm. little about where that book comes from. And now I'm just so hungry to pick it up. Yeah. Um, it has been so juicy speaking with you, Robin. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure talking to you, Rob, and I'm so grateful that was not enough time for all of the um stories and knowledge that you house. But I just want to leave saying thank you for all of the work you've done in Altiro. Thank you for this book that you've written, which I'm really delighted to pick up. Mm. And I want to say, too, that you are enough. And you've been enough today
1: And you've been wonderful You've made me really (laughs) comfortable Thank you Oh good Thanks Robin
0: (laughs) We survived We did it I hope you loved listening to that podcast Um, The best way to get more of Robin Is to buy her books Staying in Love um, Which has been out for some time But is still so relevant about how to um, maintain a, a pleasurable and delightful connection in a um, long-term monogamous relationship over time and of course her new book which could, which is a, a in cra- crazy uh, edited edition of People's Contributions to um, How to Address Child Abuse and how important it is to address child abuse in New Zealand so that's called Free to Be Children and you can get them anywhere you get your books
2: that's right um We're still in our infancy on this podcast journey, Um, we've got some amazing interviews which are already out there into the ether and um, we've got some more coming up so check those out, Um, Asians and Sex, Future of Sex Ed, um, Ending HIV, etc, etc, so yeah, look them up. We also want to hear from you guys, um, the audience, we want to hear anything you've got to say on any of the things we've talked about um any feedback or criticism uh if you've got any ideas for future guests or shows then um yeah we just want to simply check in drop us a line uh send us your pictures um any voice recordings or anything else uh to hello at sex we'd love to include them in our upcoming episodes and you can also follow us on facebook and instagram at sex and mm. that's sex and space d-o-t-c-o-m
0: yeah and if you enjoy this podcast please do drop us don't be shy about giving us that five star review it helps so much don't be shy on good old apple Podcasts. if you want to throw in a lovely review that's great we we definitely will be shouting out our reviews on future episodes so keep those reviews incredibly sexy we'd love to hear them so a massive thanks to all of our guests um to the good folks at the armory and pōreke to the um, team at String Theory for their support. Andrew, Tanya, Brandon, David and Richard for their amazing voices. And thank you to my incredible co-host, Tim Blower. And incredible. <laughs> he really is. And thank you to you for making it all the way through to the end with us. We so appreciate your time. Sure do. Join us next week. Bye. Bye.
1: If you found some of this material a little challenging, keep coming back and we'll make it really challenging.